Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamrai. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab, a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab, as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In episode two, Vanderbilt graduate student and Critical Design Lab member Maggie Mang interviews Mimi Cook about her creation and design of Open and Emergency, a special issue of the Asian American Literary Review focused on mental health. This episode is about hacking as a design methodology for disabled people to speak back against dominant biomedical frameworks, including psychiatry. Maggie and Mimi discuss what it means to hack the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM, with Asian American perspectives, and how the methodology of hacking leads to other forms of cultural production. In the case of open and emergency, this includes a tarot deck, a poster, an annotated pamphlet, and an envelope of letters. So this work is really asking the question of what it means to produce literary and academic work, what material forms that can take, and how to crip and query these material forms as a way of getting at different kinds of content. So here are Maggie and Mimi. Hi, my name is Maggie Meng, and I am so excited to be here with Dr. Mimi Cook, a queer Vietnamese-American writer, scholar, and teacher of things unwell, to speak about Open and Emergency, a special issue on Asian-American mental health. Mimi, as guest editor for Open and Emergency, has research interests in race and mental health, queer of color feminist critique, religion and magic, and Asian-American motherhood. Mimi, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today on a project that carries resonance for so many people. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting to get to talk about open emergency and uh, mental health more broadly with you. Yeah, absolutely. A quick prefatory question, I think, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the project. Could you just perhaps talk a little about what open and emergency is? Sure. So Open Emergency is my collaborative arts and humanities intervention into mental health, the special issue of the Asian American Literary Review, um, which is a D.C.-based arts nonprofit and journal 
um, and I published it in late 2016. Um, it's not what you normally think of as a journal <laughs> or as a book. Uh, it's a box, and it has five components in it, um, a DSM, Asian American edition, uh, a deck of original tarot cards, Asian American tarot cards, a stack of handwritten letters from daughters to mothers, um, a tapestry of testimonials around mental health and suffering, and a pamphlet on postpartum depression that's been annotated and treated. So it, it has lots of fun parts, and they're intervening in thinking about mental health from an arts and humanities perspective. So what does hacking mean to you and working with these collaborators in open and emergency? And why did you decide to use the language of hacking? And what about it was really effective, but also was able to draw one's attention to what, what the message of open and emergency is? So why, why hacking that allows it to be really uh, provocative or draw your attention to, I guess, like the politics of, of everything that we've been talking about? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So um, I know there's, you know, theoretical work done on hacking, which I actually do not know about (laughs) and have not directly engaged in. Uh, But I can talk a little bit about my process there, me and Lawrence and I, in thinking about the project. And this is sort of contextualized within AALR, Asian American Literary Review, whose approach has always to literary work and creative work and cultural work has always been do things that we think people need and not what they want because what people want is often just what they already know and so just trying to figure out what people need requires stepping outside of what people know and what people expect and so ALR has been very playful in that way trying to play with forms in order to um, do a little bit of bait and switch I consider I consider hacking a little bit of bait and switch right like we're going to give you a DSM but it's not the DSM you you thought you knew, right? But it's in that act of bait and switch that you actually get to directly intervene and engage. Like, like we could have done not a DSM and just done something else. And doing something else does provide an alternative and providing alternatives are really important. But when you hack, you're directly engaging the thing that you're trying to intervene in and it grounds it in a certain way and it makes that alternative speak directly to what it's pushing against and what it's opening up. So when we were like, you know, we, we need to, people to write essays, we need people to um, give us all kinds of ways of engaging mental health. Well, what form could that take? Sure, it could be an anthology. That's pretty boring, right? A collection of essays. But if it's a DSM, suddenly now we have a way of holding these things together that now speak directly to dominant ways of thinking about mental health totally opens up these categories and takes authority back from the psychiatric industry and and world. And then the tarot cards is another form, right? Hacking the tarot cards is a way to, well, first, just even using tarot cards for mental health is already a kind of hacking, already kind of weird and strange thing to do. People don't think of divination practices as mental health practices, also because magic is, you know, unscientific and of course you can only do science when you're doing uh, mental health so that's a kind of stepping outside already and then taking tarot cards that, that are originally medieval italian playing cards that are white as fuck and have nothing to do with asian americans to say hey what if we made meaning making tools that actually draw from asian american experience and, and asian american studies framework that 
we already used to try to help ourselves understand in a scholarly way about our lives. What if we informed divination practices with that same kind of knowledge so that it can help people make meaning using this new form? So, you know, we love playing with form, thinking about how generative it can be to engage a form that exists and and do something, you know, funky to it or generate an entire new form that then also makes you think about things differently. I think what I love, I think most about open and emergency is exactly this playing with form that you're talking about. But I love that part of open emergency is that the materials are themselves so varied. So like I can rip out pages from the DSM into like self-care cards. And there's like a poster that I physically have to unfold. It's really amazing just like the playing with form from a more theoretical standpoint, but also from a like material standpoint. And like feeling this and doing different things with paper, that was really cool. And I think it's part of the the effectiveness of of exactly what you're talking about here. And part of that is like like for instance the letters when I when I came up with that idea, um, I knew that I wanted to engage dynamics in immigrant families, right? The kind of power dynamics, but also circuits of love and pain that exist. And this is, again, inspired by Aaron Ning's work. Um, it's okay, what are the way that we in, can engage those kind of circuits? And, you know, we we're like, well, what about letters? What about letter writing between daughters and mothers? And, well, if we're going to print letters, why would you put it in a book? Letters aren't, letters aren't, you know, meant to be in a book. They're meant to be on paper and then mailed, right? And so, okay, that means we have to print them on paper. And then many of our writers actually chose to use notebook paper, which I love. But they did that. Um, we let the writers kind of choose what kind of materials they wanted to use. Many used notebook paper. So they really ran with the form. And then we we're like, well, it has to be folded up in an envelope because that's how you get a letter. So we had you know, kind of two steps there, right? Thinking about the form as a letter conceptually, but then the materiality of it, like you said, it creates a different experience when you have to take it out of an envelope, open it up. There's a kind of intimacy that happens when you feel like you're actually reading somebody's intimate writing that they have sent. I'm really interested in the narratives of like compulsory wellness that kind of get circulated around campus with like these student health, mental health outreach programs and even wellness programs with corporations and how that puts forth kind of like a bracketed idea of what wellness should look like. But it's not actually the full picture. And I think the, the really revolutionary part of Open and Emergency is that it breaks that open and say, says these are not the only narratives that should be circulated. Exactly. And, and the kinds of wellness promoted, like you were talking about campus wellness, right, and things that the university promotes, that kind of wellness is deeply neoliberal in that it puts responsibility on the individual. Right? The individual needs to get well. Here are ways that you can get well. You can do self-care for yourself. Um, but implied in that is that you're responsible for your wellness. And so if you are not well, then somehow you have, you're the one that's failing, right? You didn't do what it takes to be well. Um, and there's no kind of responsibility on any other communities or structures and no implication of the university in how it contributes to unwellness uh, because it's just additive, right? It's just like, here are some things that we can add on to help you deal with your unwellness individually on a case-by-case basis and not thinking about the overall state of unwellness at a university and, and the kinds of forces that are shaping it. 
So I've been thinking a lot about self-care and what forms of care are, again, um, attached to these narratives of wellness and how self-care, when it came out, I think, in the 80s out of a lot of like feminist movements, was really radical. And since then, it's been really apoliticized. And so what kind of self-care methods are these universities putting out that maybe doesn't actually address the root cause of the issue? You know, I was just at the National Women's Studies Association conference and, and I was on a panel thinking about what survival looks like in the academy and university for disability studies scholars and for disabled folks. And somebody asked about how we think about self-care. And yeah, I talked about what kinds of self-care, like, like I, I believe in taking care of myself. I want resources to take care of myself for sure. But this movement to self-care as commercialized, right? consumerist buying things to you know that will help you and then individualize right that care shouldn't ever be collective or communal responsibility and then Sammy Shock uh, was on the panel with me and she brought up exactly what you're saying that for marginalized folks for folks of color especially women of color queer folks of color the way Audrey Lord framed self-care right as revolutionary as survive like surviving as revolutionary because we are told that we don't deserve to live, to be here. So taking care of ourselves instead of constantly taking care of other people is actually quite a radical act. And I, I totally agree with that. But taking care of ourselves needs to be expanded beyond like, you know, baths and meditation <laughs> and actually one addressing the kind of structural issues that are killing us, but also thinking about it collectively in community, a kind of communal care and communal accountability to each other. So it's been about two years since Open and Emergency has come out. How is it utilized in different spaces and what can you do with the project itself? Yeah, yes, yes. So, okay. So, um, you know, Open and Emergency came with a teaching program that, that I've been running. And um, that teaching program sort of exists on Facebook as a Facebook group in one form, but also it, it existed as kind of me trying to develop a certain kind of pedagogy and, and developing particular, uh, and just experimenting with like different assignments, different ways of approaching the parts of the work, um, different kinds of classrooms and, and topics as a way to get to mental health and to engage the text. And so the Facebook group has been awesome in sharing some of these ideas I've been sharing, but then also other instructors and faculty who have been teaching share propose questions, but then also share their assignments and then share with permission student work responding to open and that's been so mind blowing to me to kind of see the ways that students engage the work and the question of mental health and and really taking the time to think and think creatively about their own well being that's been super inspiring to see and so as we are kind of moving along now in an we're moving to another phase of Open Emergency's life. So it's sold out. And we're doing the reprint, right? And thinking about trying to expand it a little bit in the reprint. I also want to think about what is the next kind of iteration of its teaching life as well. Think about ways of digitizing the teaching and learning experience as a part of their course. And then that can exist online and other people can either access it to see it, but also can add to it and, and communally put together, right? Communal collaboration, you know, and I'm all about like getting as many people to participate as possible in order to make it both accessible, but also to really get a sense of what the community needs and is doing, thinking about. And, you know, it's been, so it's been taught in probably over two dozen classrooms now, which is awesome. And it's reaching, you know, hundreds of students that way. And then I've been on my, you know, book tour 
the last almost two years now, and I've been to uh, maybe like three dozen, you've done three dozen talks or something, teaching different universities and meeting students there. And it's been wonderful, but it does feel a little bit one-off sometimes. I can interact with only a limited number of students, right? And, and engage in kind of workshops and thinking and being together for a very short amount of time that feels very fulfilling and feels productive and generative for the people who are involved. But again, it's just this kind of one moment. And even in the classroom, maybe it's a semester, but it's still just kind of one moment and it's still only a handful of students. So, yeah, I would love to think about bringing that classroom experience and the talks and workshop experience and community building experiences that I've had over the last two years into the digital space so that people can, more people can access it, more people can connect with each other. So that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And I'm working actually with Erin Ning, who is a part of the project. She's a professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara, who's a literary scholar and does work on Asian American women and suicide. So yeah, we're actually actively right now thinking about how to both digitize and expand the the reach of open emergency through a kind of like teaching program model. I love just how collective this entire process or and project is, not only in like regional iteration of open emergency, like you have dozens and dozens of, of artists and scholarly collaborators, but now you're also thinking about how do we collaborate on on teaching and working with the material. So Open Emergency, the original you know, project had over 75 contributors, and that was massive. And um, I did have a few you know, editors who helped manage some of it, but, but I, I, for the most part, I and my partner, Lawrence Mbou Davis, the editor of ALR, managed most of that. And you know, that was my first editorial project, and taking on 75 contributors is, is, a, is a big thing. I would not recommend it <laughs> that scale, except, except able to build at that, you know, with that scale. So like logistically very challenging, but I'm really committed to a kind of communal practice that yes, the editors like, you know, have this vision, but who brings it to life? You have to give the community the access and the space to bring it to life. I could not have done it right on my own without all the people with their brilliance contributing to it. And so, yeah, the teaching program and now working with other yeah faculty and then thinking about creating this online resource is all about continuing to grow and and continue to not just its reach but its collabor- collaborative potential right everyone contributing the community contributing as much as they can because this is for the community who else is it for how does one sustain or build this this type of community how did you find these 75 different collaborators and how are you now like sustaining these ties that you're making so we, we found folks in, in sort of two ways. So, you know, uh, my partner, Lawrence, has been editor of ALR for now we're coming up on 10 years. And so, you know, has deep connections with the literary community, right? Asian American poets and writers and artists. And then both of us are part of Asian American studies. We're both Asian American studies scholars and participate actively in that field. And so we have lots of connections with the scholarly side of doing Asian American work. And so we had those relationships, but as we were envisioning opening an emergency as a mental health project from an arts and humanities perspective and not from a dominant psychological or psychiatric approach or medical approach, okay, well, who's doing mental health work? Because it's not, you know, when, when you at first ask that question, most people look to the psychology and psychiatry 
and we're like, we're not going to look there because we actually think that there are artists and writers and you know, humanity scholars who are doing mental health work who may not call it that. So can we be more expansive thinking about what mental health is and, and the, what the work looks like? And so the question becomes more about who's doing work on suffering and pain and meaning making and survival and trauma, right? There's other ways of thinking about uh, mental health. And then there's tons of people doing that work and doing it in really amazing ways. And so we saw our job as providing this vision and this structure and then just pulling in amazing people doing amazing things. And once you pull them in and you kind of ask them to do their thing, then I don't have to be the expert on everything. And they don't have to be the expert on everything either. I just have a vision for what it could look like to bring in all these amazing people together and create something that is creative and artistic and intervenes and kind of steps sideways away from the usual ways we talk about mental health from the medical model. And so as we were envisioning Open Emergence, Lawrence and I came up with the idea of the DSM and the tarot cards, but then it became, well, who could contribute, whose work right now is really awesome and, and would really help us rethink the DSM? Who's doing work that could give us a tarot card on, say, adoption? from a critical perspective or refugee experiences. And then the other part of this is that we did community dreaming sessions as we were envisioning the project. So we would host a series of sessions where we brought in scholars, writers to just have conversations about mental health. And they were sort of unstructured, but they were amazingly feelingful. I mean, there was one time where we were all at, at the Asian American Studies Conference, AAAS, somehow got assigned to a room that was like a tiny bedroom. <laughs> it was so small. And there was like 40 of us trapped like sardines in there. People were sitting on the floor. There was basically no room to move. We we're all sitting like right up against each other. And it, there was just so much weeping during the entire session. And the conversation was like just about mental health and meaning and, and what does it look like to suffer? I had gathered for the panel you know, several scholars whose work, so like Erin Ning, um, Eliza No, who, who does work on Asian American women and suicide, Jim Lee, who's been doing, you know, illness and disability studies and thinking about woundedness. And so having kind of different perspectives on a, we suddenly realized is a similar set of questions and we suddenly realized so much need. Apparently there had not been a space for this, right? And just the weight of that kind of a breaking open all these feelings. And we did that several times over the course of a few years. And that's really what got people to buy into the project and helped me and Lawrence envision a project that could be intellectually responsible to those community needs. I have one last question because I want to be respectful of your time. What do you hope for in terms of how we navigate things like suffering and trauma and teaching and care? both with ourselves and with our loved ones and with our students and with our faculty? You know, some days, I think you're catching me on a better day. Some days I'm not feeling so hopeful about the state of things. <laughs> but there are other days that actually, when I engage students and see both how hungry they are for resources and for ways of talking about their suffering and their mental health, I'm like, I'm like, you know what? The future is fucking fine. These students, they know what's up. You know, I, I, they know what questions to ask and they are demanding answers and they're smart as fuck. And so those days feel really good. And then there are days where I, you know, encounter my colleagues and I'm like, y'all are annoying as fuck. Like you, you, <laughs> my colleagues refuse 
to ask the right question sometimes and won't ask it in their work, won't ask it of themselves, and definitely won't ask it with the, with their students. And that feels really frustrating to me. And so my hope, as I've been traveling around the country and talking to folks, I see students really pushing for this. And I see definitely some resistance amongst faculty and amongst university administrations, but it does feel like it's shifting. It does, like, it, it just feels like universities cannot continue to pretend that mental health really doesn't matter. Now, the ways that they are pretending it matters is challenging because they're willing to say it matters and then they do some fluffy ass shit around it. And that's challenging, but that does mean that there is a shift, if that makes sense, right? And so I'm really hopeful that the students continue to succeed in their push for asking for what they need. And then the kind of reception of open emergency has also been really hope making in that when we made the project, we had, we knew. It was some good stuff, but we didn't really know until people were like, this is what we needed. And so that was so validating to hear from folks that this is what they needed and this is saving their lives. Because that was the goal, but I never dreamed it would reach the people that it's reached and the you know had the kind of success that it has. So I do want to say that I think it has shifted the conversation already. I see it shifting in Asian American studies. I see it shifting in disability studies, which are the two fields that I'm engaging in the most right now. And it's, you know, things shifting in academia are always a slow process, <laughs> glacial process. But I, I, I do see it shifting. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that continues. And I'm hoping that in the, on, on the way we, you know, burn some shit down. That's always necessary. And we build new things. And, and my hope is that an emergency helps give us some tools to start doing both the burning and the building. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Mang, Jara Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.